And we're back. Best hour of their day. Fern Ackerman. I think one thing we don't often talk about is we do all these podcasts virtually. Fern has a beautiful new wall behind him. I did it myself. You Are you handy? I, I'm probably what I describe as like dangerously handy, meaning I'm handy enough to create dangerous situations. What's the most handy thing you've ever done? Ooh. I'm not sure, man. Like I've installed fences. I've done roof work. I've done demo. I've done a decent amount of like electrical work as far as like installing, you know, putting in light fixtures and fans and light switches, changing out ballasts, done some plumbing, like ripping out, like that's what I was doing last weekend was ripping out toilets and sinks and, and putting in new ones. Um, I can't that weld. Sounds, sounds uh, handy. I've got a decent amount of tools. Yeah, you're good. You're good. I on the other but like hand. I said, just I'm like just dangerous enough to to get myself in hot water. Like <laughs> make makes sense. I can't do anything. No surprise. Yeah, that's not shocking at all. That's a, that's one of my I wouldn't call it a regret, but it's probably my biggest weakness. I mean, is it? Do you need to be handy? <laughs> I think. Um, I think it would be nice. It's like one of those things. It's like training jujitsu. It's like you don't want to ever use it on the streets, but it's nice to know you got it. And I can, like, I can do the basics in a vehicle. I'm not going to be changing out. You know, I'm not going to be doing. Uh, I'm probably not going to change my own brakes. I'm, you know, I'm not going to change the pads. I can do a tire change. I can do an oil change. I can change filters. I can change. It's pretty I can, good swap batteries. Like I, I can do some aftermarket work like mounting bumpers and wenches and doing you, stuff like that. But, the, for people listening, I mean, that basically sounds like you're an auto mechanic because I, my battery no, like died. That, that means I can do some stuff that involves watching a YouTube channel. Like I can take a door apart and put it back together, but I can't, I couldn't take an engine apart, right? Like my knowledge of en engines is limited. I'm can, so impressed by so the people. good part is the good part is everything's on YouTube. That is, that is true these days. Where back in the day, it was like my stepfather yelling at me outside, trying to teach me about a car. Now it's like I could just throw it on a YouTube channel. But I'm so impressed by much, people that understand not cars. not much you can find on YouTube. Not much. Yeah. Like yeah. most of it, I can Google it and figure it out. And sometimes like you just have to sift through some really crappy videos or it's like, you know, you're looking for something very specific. <clears throat> I, tend well, to, I tend to shy away from electric, electricity. Good idea. We don't need you electrocuting yourself before the episode. But, no. you know, we're off topic a little bit. But the, the topic of just understanding how to fix things and, and improve things is important because recently we had an episode on buying and selling an affiliate. And if you're going to buy or sell or you're a part of an affiliate, you probably have to learn a few of those things. And that's really, you know, I've owned a few homes. But the only time I've really had to dive into, like, fixing things was at the affiliate like you said, the only reason I knew that term ballast in a, in a light fixture is because I had to change it myself and change those types of things and fix phalanges that were my pull-up bars, you know, back in the day. Yep. But we wanted to touch on something because since putting out that episode, we've had quite a few emails and DMs come in 
And Fern wanted to go over one. I don't know how detailed you want to be about it, but just to touch on, you know, the, the pros and cons of buying an affiliate, a little bit of a real world example here. So we actually get these a lot. So a lot of people reach out and they have questions about should they purchase, should they not? I regularly have these conversations at level ones and level twos. Um, I won't give a ton of detail here because I don't want to give away who it is. Not that really anybody would know. Um, but I'll run through some of the basics. So basically this person, and I know this person, I knew them before we did the podcast and they reached out and they were a member here years ago. And uh, basically they were looking to buy into the gym that they're currently at, which is a pretty common scenario. And I found out that the, it's pretty standard story. So think of all the, the standard stuff, right? The gym is kind of stagnant. The owner the operator wants to get rid of it. And they're like, you look like somebody who would want to do this. I'll sell it to you. Right. Um, so you, you, you're, you're a good member. You, you seem to enjoy this place. Take this uh, load off my shoulders. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give the, we'll skip all the details and stuff. So I'm like, he sent me a PL and breakdown of expenses and all this stuff. But the, the big ticket takeaways is I found out there's a silent partner who's the financial backer. So they would Wait, only be, go ahead. Stop, stop there for a second. I think that's really something we didn't touch upon. I know a couple boxes and actually one that we visited on the road trip on dropping in episodes uh, had the same thing. What's your opinion on that? I'm, it generally makes me very uneasy. I, I'm not aware of a ton of scenarios where that worked out well. I, I agree. I think it's unfortunate. Like you want to start a business and you need finances and maybe you can't get yourself a loan or you're stressed out about it. But when you have someone that's only invested money in a business that requires a ton of sweat equity, it's not a good scenario because you're going to be grinding. You're going to be hustling to pay them back or to give them whatever percentage you've agreed upon. But meanwhile, it's not about the money. It's that you need help at the box. You need help. And then typically, far more often than not when I've seen this, there is no operating agreement in place. So there's no rules with regard to who, who makes what decisions. And this is where eventually a ton of conflict comes into play because this person who's financially vested wants to make decisions about the business because they've got their money in it, but they don't know anything about the business. So there's this constant like, you know, knocking of heads and it generally just doesn't work out very well. Right. So, I mean, for example, 2007, I'm about to open Albany CrossFit. My aunt and my uncle are very successful financially and in business. And I wasn't going to them for money, but I was just talking about the business of CrossFit. And my aunt says, that's a really bad business model. Like you want people that are going to pay you enough to keep paying, but not come in. And I was like, you've described a global gym model. And, and she wasn't trying to steer me wrong, but she, and she's very smart, but it's like, if I would have had a financial backing from her, we would have just been butting heads because I would have been like, Hey, our rates are this. And she's like, we need more members at $20. But you know, that, that's a, that's a challenge there. Let me ask you a very personal question. Feel free to tell me you don't want to answer. Okay. Do you own Rife with Jess? Uh, yes, we do. Yep. So we own you, it together. Do you guys have an oper Jess is Burns' wife, by the way. Do you guys have an operating agreement in place? No, we don't. Yeah, and I mean, just just curious because I've just I, I don't know that it's necessary for a spouse 
to, I mean, to some degree it is like the way we structured it was for some strategic reasons. Um, I, we did, however, just rearrange a ton of stuff with our lawyer with regard to uh, creating a trust, putting all our assets in a trust and then setting all that stuff up and, and rearranging like, like how we house all of our assets to include the business. So we did just do that. Um, Cause that's what our lawyer recommended, but there's no operating agreement. I mean, I operate the business, like we own it together cause we're married, but that's it, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm just curious, but the point is, I think anyone should get an operating agreement, you know, husband and wives, I'd throw in there like, Hey, you probably have a more important agreement, uh, this marriage certificate. So you have to deal with that anyway. But I think, I think if you're both intimately involved in the business, then you probably, yeah, you probably need some structure around that. But for the most part, I mean, my wife's still active duty in the military. So like she does very little, uh, you know, she chips in where she can. And I'm not saying that to say she doesn't, no, I get you. Just does nothing. Just does nothing across her life. I get it. She's a, yeah. you know, like like me. You have to carry her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no wonder you're so tired all the time. You got I'm me. I'm just car Jess. carrying people. I'm just carrying people all the time. <laughs> yeah, two I'm kids. I'm just like walking Cassidy. around my whole life with a with a weighted with a weighted sled behind me, just dragging people. But um, your legs are strong. All right, sorry. I just was curious about that. And and again, if you're thinking about owning a box, especially with someone that you're not married to, get your shit down on paper. I mean for my boxes, for own your eating, for best hour with you, for a Thunderbro contract. Mm -hmm. I trust everyone that I've ever gone into business with. And with the exception of one, my second box, they're all still intact. You know, this one by, by strings, by threads, we're still intact. Um, so, you know, like, I guess like kudos to us, like that's something that you and I were pretty vehement about, about like before we did anything, we're like, listen, contract 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 because yeah we, we are totally cool but people are totally not cool once you put money in there like and i'm and i'm fully aware of how that goes like i've had some stuff go south there so well i think it's just easier to stay on the same page because you know we didn't go like super detailed like hey jay posts this and fern posts that but it's pretty obvious when when either one of us isn't doing it or whatnot where it's like point is as a box owner you want to be able to have this piece of paper ideally you never touch it you know, it sits in your drawer at the desk at, at the office, but you have a piece of paper with a partner. Where it's like, Hey, remember when we signed this and it says, you know, you're going to be here five days a week, or you're going to do the blog posts. Like it's nice to have that. And we know it. And it's, it's, it's no difference. Like, why do you get married? So you might as well just live together. Cause there's a little bit of a difference when you sign that piece of paper. Yeah. I mean, you're, <clears throat> you join everything, you know, and that, you and I've joked about this before, but like when you get in a contract, when you get into business, somebody you're, essentially married to some extent you know we talk basically every day yeah. so multiple times in, in many cases and and like most marriages the nudies stopped coming once we got married Fern yeah. send me some of those nudies again please done well, so, I haven't been <laughs> feeling really good about myself lately I've been sick <laughs> yeah I mean, Fern's got a little frog in his throat but but he's a trooper so so go on tell me more about this box so I found out so I asked some questions I said hey you need to get some metrics for me before I give you you know, any of my thoughts. So he comes back and he gives me a bunch of stuff. He gives me income, uh, which anytime I get income, that's a perfectly round number. I know it's not exact. And, and let me, I, I don't mean to keep interrupting, but I want to chip in for, you are very, very good at black and white, which I'm bad at. And we've talked about it before behind the scenes on some business stuff, but we're like, I, I would, you know, for the box owners out there, like I get that feeling of like, 
I just want to buy this thing. I just want to own this gym. I just want to be a part of it. Where Fern's very much like, cool, show me the numbers. Uh, now, so that's not always been the, that's not always been the case. I'm like that now because I've learned the hard way. I've learned that not digging into the numbers, not vetting things really, really well can be very, very painful in the back end. And generally, if you, if you vet and you filter and you vet and you filter and you ask a lot of questions, the numbers will tell the story. It'll, 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 the, the answer becomes very objective. It's not emotional anymore. So in this instance, he sends me all the income. I know the income is not exactly correct because it's a perfect number, you know? Yeah, and then the, that's and impossible. Then, and then all the, all of the other numbers are like very rounded off numbers. So I know these aren't accurate. Now the, what I don't know is to what extent they're not accurate. Is it not accurate by five bucks? Is it whatever? <clears throat> and um, so I'm a little worried about that. It gives me the active uh, memberships and it gives me a range of 10 active memberships. I'm like, is it the, ho is it the low number or is it the high number? Depending on what it is, that could be a 1500 to, two, to 2k swing, depending on what your memberships are, you know, of monthly income. Absolutely. Um, and then the breakdown uh, of the silent partner was 5149. So we have operating partners and then we have a silent partner. So the operating partners want out. The silent partner wants to make his money back. So I think everybody here has a clear enough picture to kind of see what is going on. The other two things that are important are the gym's not profitable. So basically just breaks even, probably actually loses a little bit of money, uh, is for, it, at least for tax purposes. Probably, probably, it probably shows a loss. Um, now, the agreement, so we'll do some numbers here. Let's just say that I'm, I'm making these up, right? They're pretty close, but I'm making them up. The agreement or the 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 requested purchase price was 65K for 49%. Okay. Now we'll do a little shark tank here. If that is the agreement, you're talking about a business that A, now needs operators, doesn't make any money. So whoever buys this is not getting paid right out of the gate. You're going to incur a loan cost on top of that. And if we were just to do a quick valuation on this business, they're saying that if you want 49% of this business, I'm want 65,000 for it. That means the valuation is a hundred and I'll give you the exact. It's a $133,000 business. That's what they're saying it's worth. Now, I highly doubt that if we just counted all of the assets in this business, so that it's even anywhere near 75K based on what he told me, based on the size of the business, like square footage and based on the member base. Well, and then the other thing, you, you know, that you have to consider is this guy's asking for 49%, which that's a business thing. I get it, but certainly something that raises a red flag to me. Like, okay, you want me involved, but I don't get to make any decisions. Forget that. I, don't, I think that's honestly kind of secondary. It's like the valuation is like we've talked about before is very bloated. Like, and like, how is this business worth $133,000? Like it's losing money. And I know it doesn't have $133,000 worth of assets in it simply based on what I know, having been to a ton of gyms based on the square footage of the space and how, what their membership base is. It's not worth that much money. It's probably not even worth the 65 K that he's requesting. 
So going back to what you said and what we did in the purchase of the business, my recommendation for that is don't buy the business. Just start your own for 65K. And yeah. I don't have to have a partner. Like you don't have to do that because how long is it going to take you to get that, to get that? And then what's the buyout over, over that time? Like what, so I'm going to invest for 65 K then I got to buy you out. So I'm probably going to pay the full 130 K for this business that was losing money. If I decided to do this or I'm going to lose everything that I invested in. Right. And $65,000 is plenty to start a new spot. And if it's not plenty to start a new spot, it's at least enough to, to get it going and, if you still need a partner, you certainly don't need one that's going to take 51% of it. It's more than enough to start a, a, a spot if you're going to do it intelligently and start small. That you Something you can grow into. 65K is, is enough. You can get all the equipment that you need um, for, let's call it 30. Like how, many, how much equipment do you need? Well, you, not to mention Rogue Off. If you're using Rogue Fitness, they offer... Plenty of options yeah, yeah. for financing. So in this scenario, like you, there's just way too much liability for me to recommend a purchase of that business. Like it's just the, the price point is just way too high. I, I would venture to say this person would never make their money back and probably lose more. So have you told this, this person about that? Not yet. I just got all this stuff. Um, and I didn't tell them where, and I'm not, I mean, nobody knows who this is. So, um, I just pulled this one, but like I said, we get these probably on a weekly basis. Somebody asks us about this. Yeah. So if you have questions on that and you're considering buying or selling an affiliate, shoot us an email, best hour of their day at Gmail or shoot us a DM. Let's, let's get into today's topic for, and we're going to talk about the push jerk. Yeah. I mean, so this is the, this movement was the one I was most scared of when I started coach when I started coaching, like if it was push jerk day, I was like sick that day or like just didn't teach it, you know? So back in the day at the level ones before coach Glassman would teach the, the press, the push press and the push jerk, he would have a little demo and he would bring somebody from the audience or from the participants, I should say, and, and give them typically one fifteen and say, hey, press this as many times as you can overhead. And then they, you know, typically, you know, he'd pick a pretty strong looking dude and get 15 to 20 maybe. And then he'd bring Nicole Carroll out, you know, the, the our boss in charge of CrossFit training, and she would beat them, but she would push jerk. And it was just his way of demonstrating how the push jerk is more efficient and allows you to develop more intensity and of course, lift more load. What was, what was your first exposure to the jerk? We, I did a little bit of it in college, not very well. Um, but as far as coaching it, when I got into the affiliate, like that was the first time I was really able, like ever coaching it. But I really, really struggled teaching it well for a long time. Like it was just something I was wildly uncomfortable with. What about the jerk made you uncomfortable? Why, why were you more afraid of this movement than any other movement? There's just a lot going on in the jerk. That's one of the first things I tell new coaches. First of all, we need to just simply acknowledge complex movements for their complexity. Like if we think about everything that's going on in the push jerk, you know, there's, I've got 
barbell in the front rack. I'm going to go through a short dip drive, you know, short has a lot of variance in there. Like what is that? It's different for everybody. I've got this extension, which, you know, this is, this is assuming the person can do a push press even remotely adequately. And then the redip is what makes it super complicated. And when I first learned it, everybody was teaching the redip or kind of like the double knee bend. Um, and I tried to teach it that way at first. And it was, you know, as Todd Woodman would say, devastating. <laughs> so it, it took me a really, really long time. And I was listening to, I was thinking about this yesterday. I think I was listening to Joe Rogan, maybe he was talking about somebody like a jujitsu uh, professor, maybe or something like that. And he's referring to typically the more you, the more knowledge you gain, the less you use. Because you yeah, realize, you realize that, like the, that. that the basics is actually all you really need. Yeah, it's, it's almost that like keep it simple mentality or what I always refer to, I think it was Einstein. And they would say, you know, Einstein can explain science to a kindergartner. And it's yeah. like that same principle. So being that this push jerk is super complicated, I think today we should focus primarily on the teaching portion. Also, because you sound like death a little bit. So, and you're, you're dying. You're dying over there. Dying. But let, let's talk about, and, and, and also because when you're first getting started with the push jerk, that's what it's all about. Like, let's not even worry about fixing people. How are we going to teach people this? And I, I'll tell you what I found over the years. Women catch on to the push jerk faster, and they also accidentally push jerk almost immediately. They're like, okay, this weight's getting too heavy to take overhead. And then they naturally just push jerk. Where men, they still try to push press. They still try to, you know, overpower it with a, with a shoulder press. But it's, it's really always been fascinating to me that women just grab the bar and naturally jerk. I mean, the push, the push jerk is, is the natural progression once the weight gets too heavy. I mean, it, let's acknowledge that this is not a good teaching strategy. But if you want somebody to push jerk, just give them a barbell, have them push press until, until it gets too heavy. And they will naturally default into a push jerk because the body's pretty smart. The problem is teaching it. Like, how do I, how do I do that without having to introduce load into the scenario? Like, how can I just teach them the mechanics of the movement? And typically, all, far more often than not, when people teach this, they just over teach the crap out of it. And they start talking about all the mechanics of the movement. Um, and I've just found it, again, the more you know about it, the, the less I use. It's just jumping and landing. That's it. If you teach it for that, I've, I've never seen anybody in 12 years of doing this and it's almost seven years of, of doing seminars, if you just told them to jump and land, that they do it wrong. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's, you know, in, in the small groups at, at the level one, you know, you will always pull somebody in that's not opening their hips. Like primarily that's the fault we're looking for. And you know, you could sit there and you'll, you'll give them some cues and, and try to get them moving better. And then inevitably, if they're not, you'll just be like, hey, hand me that PVC. Just jump. Mm -hmm. And then they jump and they're like, was that right? And I'm like, yeah, now do it with this. And then they get it and they're like, oh my God, I've never opened my hips before. But yeah, because jumping with jump. a closed hip angle is ridiculous looking. Yeah, no one does that. Nobody would do that ever like it, it's like so counterintuitive you have to actively think about doing that so 
So let's go through the progression because there, there's nine foundational movements. The push jerk happens to be one that has a very standard progression that we use every weekend at the level one. And, and you know, let me put it in the front here. It goes jump and land. So if you're just standing there nice and tall, arms at your side, you're just jumping and landing. Hey, jump and land. Cool. Now jump and land with your hands up as if you were holding a barbell. So like an imaginary barbell on your shoulders. Now we're going to do that same jump and land, but this time at the top of your jump punch. So it's basically a push jerk without any load, including no PVC, and then eventually the full movement of a push jerk. Yep. So let, let's break it down. When we say jump and land, what are we really looking for in that movement? Why do we start with that jump and land, Fern? The point of that is to emphasize the hip extension. So, and, and really when you teach it, you really want to emphasize the jump and landing. So when people mess this up is when they're thinking about weightlifting. So because we're about to teach the push jerk, people are like, all right, a barbell. And you say jump and land and probably 50% of the group won't, won't jump normally. They'll, they'll kind of quasi jump because they're thinking about weightlifting. So I'll stop them real quick. I'm like, everybody jump higher. I want you to get five to six inches off the floor. Like I want you to have to actively try to lift your body weight off of the floor and jump high. At that point, everybody does it correctly because again, it's weird to not do it that way. Then when we go to the next piece, and that's all I'm looking for. I, I don't care about anything else. Like I'm solely focused on jumping and landing. I'm not worried about torso angle. I'm not worried about dip drive. I just want them to jump and land. That's all I want them to think about. Same deal. And I think the problem arises when you get people that have push jerked in the past and they, they start to minimize that hip extension because what they're thinking about is, well, I'm going to have load and this is how much I open my hips when I push jerk, you know, 135, 225. And we're like, hey, forget about the push jerk. Just jump. Just jump well, off the ground. Well, also, there are also, there are also, that, that sequence of thought or that thought process, it's, it's out of order. So if I'm thinking about the push jerk in general, the first thing I have to do is I've got to drive through the bar. And then I have to get under the bar and everybody's thinking about getting underneath the bar, which is generally why they short the hip extension. So if we emphasize the actually driving through the bar and jumping as high as I can, now what I've done is I've given myself height, which is equivalent to time, which gives me the opportunity to get underneath the bar. So you have to switch their mentality and get them to think about jumping through the bar versus getting underneath the bar. Yeah. I always tell people that there's far more to be gained by jumping high, jumping hard to give yourself that opportunity than rushing down. And chances are, if you're shorting your hip extension in this jerk, you're probably doing it in your clean, your snatch, and a handful of other movements out there. So we go from this jump and land. So everyone, you know, you're coaching the push jerk at CrossFit right for at the box you coach at. Hey guys, just jump. You know, think about hitting your head to the ceiling. Think about squeezing your butt, all of those cues that we can throw out there. A simple one is, is if people are not doing, they're just still not getting the concept, grab their PVC pipe and just hold it like up, up above their head, like where they would literally have to jump up and touch it and tell them to jump up and touch it. And they're going to ask this weird question. They're going to be, you, you mean jump up there and touch it? Like, that's exactly what I mean. I want you to jump up there and touch it. And sometimes they won't use their hands for whatever reason. I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to literally jump up there and touch it. And then when they do that, I'm like, cool, do that. That's, that's all I want you to do. Like, don't worry about weightlifting or the PVC pipe. And, then, yeah, and I'll do the same even with a barbell. If someone has a barbell, like, hey, jump and hit this. You got to give them a target that's attainable. But, yeah, you know, that's typically that light bulb moment. Where like, oh, that's what you mean by jump, mm -hmm. jump. So what do you think is the big difference now as we move from a jump and land 
to what we refer to as a jump and land with your hands at your shoulders. There I'm looking to see if we're going to have any sort of quarter extremity violation. I want to make sure they're keeping their hands on the shoulders while they jump, still emphasizing the jump while just now getting into a, a mimicked position of having a barbell in the front rack and then reinforcing the jump. So we started with just the jump absent of any other position. And then all we're going to do is add a front rack into it, but not with a barbell, just literally, you know, do the old CrossFit kids, put your thumbs on your shoulders and drive your elbows up and jump and land like that. So I'm, I'm really just looking to ensure that the hands stay on the shoulder. And it's pretty obvious if they don't. So I don't have a ton more to look at there. I'm just reinforcing the jump, put the thumbs on the shoulders, make sure the thumbs stay there when they jump and land. That's it. Yeah, and I think the other thing to be aware of at that point in the progression is it makes it a little bit easier to identify if they're keeping a vertical torso. Correct. So the other thing you want to what you want to do is you want to make people stay in the receiving position. Where this can get a little wonky is people try to stand up too quickly, and this is where everything gets out of sequence. So get them used to jumping, and if you jump and land with straight legs, you'll do it once because it hurts, and then you'll correct. Stick the landing and have everybody stay there until you tell them to stand up, just so that you can see the receiving position. Yeah, somebody always lands with straight legs, and I'm like, we would never do that in the real world. Like, you would never do that on a basketball court or in any athletic endeavor, never. or you would purposely land with straight legs. So, you mean, we're going from the jump and land to the jump and land with their hands up, pretty, pretty straightforward and pretty seamless transition. Now we get to the jump and punch or the, you know, basically – uh, mimicked push jerk, if you will. Hands are up like Fern's head, th uh, thumbs touching your shoulders. Now you're really focusing on, A, they're still getting that hip extension, but also that quarter extremity violation. Yeah. So with the timing, here's what I've found to be one of the more effective training tools um, that I've used, which is I tell people I want the hands and feet to hit together. So I want them to land on a one count. So if you can imagine – Start your hand on your shoulder and then, and you can do this absent of the push jerk, right? So all I want you to do is I want you to stomp your foot on the floor and I want your elbow to lock out at the same time your foot hit the floor. So it's a one hand and foot together. It, Cause if you do it wrong now at the bare minimum, you know that it was wrong. You might not know why, but you'll know that my foot hit one and then my arm extended two or my right. arm extended one and then my foot hit two. So I tell everybody, you know, anybody who's into music knows that. I'd be like, I want a one count. So it should be one right together. And that point, it really turns the light bulb on for a lot of people that they get that one count because now they have to wait to punch their hands. Otherwise, the hands are going to go early. And generally, one or two people will mistime it on the first couple reps. But I don't have to tell them that because they have that frame of reference of the one count. And I'll see them nodding their head and they're like, okay, that was, the timing was not correct there. Like my, my hands punched early or I waited too long simply because they understand that, that that was definitely a one, two instead of a one to the top. Now, if we are going to dive into the nuances of weightlifting, we know that realistically the front foot, if you're going to do a split jerk is probably going to hit before the hands lock out. Don't worry about it. Like don't dive into those weeds. Like that's just, don't go there. Yeah. And a, a couple of things typically happen at this point. One, you can now assess their landing position as well because they have their hands overhead and you know they're in that landing position, bend knees. We can start to look at what their overhead squat is going to look like. Inevitably, at this point, someone will say to you, and I don't know how you handle this, but I hear it a lot. Hey, 
can I have some weight? I can do this right if you give me a barbell. I mean, you know how I feel about that, which is like, if you need weight to not do something incorrectly, you don't understand the movement. Absolutely. So we go from this jump and punch. Now we're basically at the barbell or PVC, whatever you're coaching, if you're doing it in a, in a group setting where you have PVC out there or you're getting ready for class, what are we looking for now? We've gone through these steps. We're at the push jerk. Where's our focus? It's on all it's, it's, so this is where you start to rack and stack your points of performance. So each one of those progressions has something very specific that I'm looking for. So jump and land hip extension, jump and land with the hands at the shoulders, hip extension and quarter extremity, and then jump land and punch also quarter extremity while still going through hip extension. And then I'm basically just going to go back, back, back and forth between those two. Once I go to the PVC pipe, everything else is what I would consider low hanging fruit. Like if the bar is out of the frontal plane, or something like that. Those are easy things to pick up. They're static positions, number one. Um, but primarily I'm looking for hip extension is really where the vast majority of my focus goes. Hip extension and quarter extremity. Um, everything else is fairly easy to clean up. If their receiving position is jacked where their feet are too wide or their knees are in or the bars forward or the hands are too close or too wide, those are those are quick fixes. The hip extension and the cord extremity is where the vast majority of my time goes once I get to the PVC pipe. Yeah, and I think, you know, for, for most of these more complex movements, that's what you're going to do. And, and again, we've, we've talked about this so many times on the show. It's, hey, you can look for all of these little nuances and small things, but focus on the big things and you're going to see them a lot better. If you're walking around your class tonight, coaching 16 or 20 people, and you're doing a push jerk or even a clean or a snatch, and all you're doing is watching people's hips, you're going to see so much more. You're going to think of more cues. You know, mid-workout, you're probably going to throw out a whole lot more verbal cues of jump or squeeze your butt, be more aggressive, you know, all of those simple low-hanging ones, but at least you're going to see them a lot more. So we've ran through the progression. Let, let's stop there today, teaching the push jerk. We can come back to it, but anything else you want to throw in there? The other thing that people struggle with there is how to see extension. And I think we've covered this before about looking at the hip versus the knee. But typically, if people get lost at the hip, I'll have them move the eyes down to the knee and it becomes a little bit more obvious. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, it, it's very rare that someone opens their hips without also extending at the knee, which is for a lot of people a little easier to see or at least a little more apparent. Sometimes hip extension is like, ah, that was close but it, you rarely see that at the knee level. Yeah, usually if the knee's bent, it's really obvious, but people miss it because they're looking at the hip, which is what I want them to do. I want them to be laser focused on something. But again, if, it's, if, if I'm looking at it and I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I probably should find something else to look at because it's, it's clearly not going to get any more clear at that point. So find something else that might be a little bit more of a telltale sign. Now, <clears throat> I'll, I'll tell people this. It is possible to have a flexed hip with an extended knee or vice versa, have a flexed knee with an extended hip. What I will tell you, it's just incredibly awkward and you would have to actively try to do one of those two things. So it's not gonna, It's not generally gonna happen. And because I had a guy at a, a level two get pretty argumentative about that. And uh, he was like, we just can't do it. And I was like, absolutely you can do it. I'm gonna show you right now. And I just showed him both of those. I'm like, it can be done. I'm just telling you it's weird. It's not, it's, it's completely not a normal movement. Yeah. And everybody listening, go ahead and try, you know, squeeze your legs and flex at your hip. You, you, 
you've been there before. Like we've, you know, it's not a completely unprecedented position. It's just not right, especially going overhead. And then you can also, you know, uh, squeeze your butt and bend your knee and you're not going to try to finish there. So yeah, as you're doing, as you're listening to this show, check that out. But you're, you'll see people, you know, once in a while they'll do that, but it's highly unlikely, like you said. Yeah. And then only other thing maybe is just a, is probably some low hanging fruit is, is really hammer people on their overhead position as far as the active shoulders and, and really getting snappy elbows because people treat the PVC pipe like it's PVC pipe. And one of my big things is, you know, I don't, however you feel about firearms, it is what it is. Right. But treat your barbell like you would a firearm, like treat it like it's loaded. Like don't treat the PVC pipe like it's PVC pipe. I want you to treat it like it's whatever your heavy load is for you. Treat it like it's 315 or 225 or for you, you know, 65 pounds. So. <laughs> and that, that's really what's eye-opening at level ones though. Like people w- during the press group, for me, it's, it's seeing those eyeballs like, wow, my shoulders are on fire. And I'm like, yeah, because if you had 225 overhead, you'd be pushing up like you meant it. But for some reason, when it's PVC, you keep your elbows bent. Like you need to treat it. And I'll say that for the jerk. I'll say it for the med ball clean. You need to treat this like it's your best lift and be in that solid position. And then last piece of advice I would have for people is get through that progression quickly. I know we've talked about progression and and the use of the progressions. Typically where this goes wrong is people start to really try to over teach and talk about the nuances and the technical pieces of the, of the push jerk. And typically they'll get through the progressions and then there's this weird spot where they blow it. And as soon as they go to the PVC pipe, they start talking about all this stuff. And I'm like, no, you should have just gone right from that progression put the PVC pipe in their hand and had them move as quickly as possible because we just did that drill. I don't want to introduce other thoughts into that drill. I just want them to do the exact same thing that we were just doing. You're just now holding on to a PVC pipe. And we all know that like they're called stupid sticks for a reason. You could jump land and punch and do it perfectly. And the second I give you a PVC pipe for some reason, you do it incorrectly where nothing really changed. So make that transition from the progression to the movement with the PVC pipe, make it quick. You don't need to talk about anything with regard to the push trick. You just did three portions of the progression before that covering all of it. Just get right to it and start moving so that you can start seeing people move. Yeah. And I mean, that holds true for so many things. Just get to the full movement, use this progression to get you there, but get to that full movement. This, this progression is not an hour long eight, 12 minutes, 15 tops. That's what we're looking at. Yeah. I mean, if you're pretty efficient with it, you could probably do it in seven or eight minutes, you know, spend three to four minutes on the, on the progressions and then another three to four minutes on the full movement. And that's somebody who's cruising. That's somebody who's getting a lot of reps and a lot of corrections. All right, Fern, let's let you go home, take a rest day. Do you do anything specific when you're not feeling great? I work more. Here's my, here's my tip to you and for all the listeners. And I have, I've posted about this in the past. Go get yourself a clove of garlic, peel a bulb, and eat some. Then I'm going to need you to carry your own weight with regard to this podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to help you get better. The, the clove of garlic, it's something I do every single day. And people are like, why? I'm like, because I was really sick one time, started doing it, and I've just never stopped. And I truly believe it works. It's going to give you some stinky breath. 
you know, mouthwash or some gum after. I rarely get sick. That's the crazy thing. But I got these little booger eaters at home now. So they're just carrying around germs and stuff. Yeah. And my son's just open mouth kiss everybody. It's just ridiculous. But. We'll, we'll get yourself some garlic. And then the other thing I like is um, elderberry. You can go to Whole Foods. It comes in like a little bottle. Take a I shot I thought you said dingleberry. Dingleberries and elderberries. Yeah. So go, go, go get yourself some of that and you'll feel better in no time. All right. Cool. Yeah. If you guys have questions about the push jerk, um, hit us up, but your best bet is keep it very simple. Jumping and landing. Thanks again for listening to best hour of their day. And thanks again to our special guest. We appreciate all you guys do for us with best hour of their day when it comes to sharing our posts on Instagram, when it comes to subscribing to us on YouTube, when it comes to the constant feedback, we are grateful and we appreciate it. We are trying to build a community based on coaching development and becoming the best version of yourself. And it goes without saying that we couldn't do without all of you. So if you haven't already please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Season one of Dropping In is out. We are getting tremendous feedback and we'd love for you to check it out. Leave us a comment on there. Head over to our Instagram. Give us a follow. Like our pictures. Feel free to share anything that resonates with you. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or feedback for us, please don't hesitate. Email us, day at gmail.com. Thanks again. Until the next episode, we hope you've had the best hour of your day.